At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Welcome to Healthcare Americana, coming to you from the Freedom Doc Studios. I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO, co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We talk to innovative clinicians, policymakers, patients, caregivers, executives, and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. We take you behind the scenes with people across America that are putting patients first and restoring trust in American healthcare. So many of our guests and so many of our episodes focus on really the Davids and any type of business interaction going up against what I'm going to call the Goliaths. But we do that just to highlight, you know, that the, the headlines that you read every single day, it's not just doom and gloom. There's a lot of good out there. There's a lot of people doing the right thing in my world, the Freedom Health Works and the direct primary care and concierge care. That means that individual doctors meeting with individual patients and fixing health problems, addressing it there, not looking at some type of central planning or some nameless corporation to come in and save them, usually insurance or whatever that is. Today's guest presents a little bit different take on that. And I'm I'm really excited because it's an angle that we just don't get to talk about a lot. And that is what I'm going to say, and I hope she doesn't uh, come at me for this one, but this is one of the Goliaths out there in the world, in the healthcare space, that is looking at entrepreneurship, that is looking at innovation, that is looking at helping more of a boots on the ground type of approach to drive better outcomes in uh, healthcare really across the world. Please welcome Amy West, head of U.S. Digital Transformation and Innovation, an internal innovation incubator at Novo Nordisk. Amy, welcome to Healthcare Americana. It is a pleasure to be speaking with you. Thanks, Christopher. I'm, I'm thrilled to be talking with you today, and I appreciate the opportunity to be a part of your program. So thank you. Hopefully, uh, you don't have your, your pitchforks out uh, for my introduction. But, you know, so many times big companies, big corporations get things wrong or they get stuck in their ways. And so many people are sitting here saying, there's got to be a better way to do this. Yeah. Um, and I think um, that is absolutely true. And I know healthcare. is can be very frustrating for all of us. We all have our stories and our are examples that we can share. And, you know, I work for Nova Nordisk. We are a pharmaceutical manufacturer. We just celebrated 100 years this year. And uh, our, our primary focus has, where we started was in the diabetes space. And we've since evolved over 100 years into some other areas like obesity and cardiovascular disease and some other areas. And, um, you know, we recognize that the way we have done things for the last 100 years, we're going to have to, it's not going to get us to the next 100 years. We're going to have to make some changes. And so the company is very committed to looking at how do we invest in innovation to meet the needs of our customers, our patient, patient customers, our 
provider customers as well as the payer side. And the company has always been very customer-centric, always really starting with the patient at the center of what we do. But again, things are evolving and changing in how we can reach and connect and deliver. And so one example of how this company is, I think, being really innovative, and I could be a little bit biased, but it's because I'm leading up this digital transformation and innovation organization within our U.S. market. I'm, in essence, an innovation incubator. We are, we are focused on the needs of the U.S. market, in particular, starting with our patient customers' root cause pain points, really looking at the challenges that we see in healthcare that even sit beyond the cost of drug, which is obviously at the top of the news, right? But looking at things like there are people out there that can't even get to a doctor to get a diagnosis, to get a prescription, you know, and then have the challenge of paying for that prescription. So how do we look more holistically at healthcare at the patient root cause pain points and start to look at how can we leverage innovation to support that in addition to our pharmacotherapeutics and the device, the delivery devices and things like that. So really trying to take a more holistic view of how can we ensure that our medications are getting to the right people at the right time based on what their needs are. It's this departure and what you're describing from what many people, including yourself, describe as it's really a sick care model. It's all reactionary. We're not going out there and actually teaching people how to be healthier, showing them a good example, educating them along the way, because for most business models, that is a disincentive to sell more treatments, sell more medication, sell more visits to your doctor. And all that is built on what you just identified as an incorrect payment structure in the U.S. Now, being working for a Danish company, is there any kind of like inner office rivalry where it's saying like, hey, this this country's model over here versus this country's model? You guys get in at any type of international healthcare politics? I know I wouldn't call it a rivalry. I mean, there's a recognition that we're we're very we're all, all the markets are different, right? And in particular, I think you could argue that the U.S. market is probably one of the most complex uh, because we have commercial insurers, we have you know Medicare, Medicaid. We don't have single payer, which most of the rest of the world is single payer. And because of this uh, multi payer approach, we have a, we have all these complexities and. We also have a very strong consumer demand uh, going on here. Um, in the United States, we can, we are, pharmaceutical manufacturers are able to speak to, um, you know, our customers through direct-to-consumer advertising. You can't do that in most other countries around the world. And it speaks to this rise of consumerism in healthcare because if you look at, most other industries like financial services or travel and leisure or retail, the consumer gets to really call a lot of the shots as far as when they want to engage, what they want. They have a lot of options and they'll choose. And we're now seeing this transfer into the healthcare space. And, and healthcare tends to be a laggard with a lot of these innovations. And, and not for, you know, there, there's good reason for that. I mean, there, you know, there's a lot of Privacy, you know, health, health privacy, HIPAA is of utmost importance across the board of any any player in this space. And that's why it can be harder to integrate some of these innovations. 
but we're starting to be able to make some some better strides because we understand it better and there's better connectivity. But this transference of customer control and decision and, and choice making is really hitting the healthcare space. And so we acknowledge that people are now having, customers are having to pay more out of pocket for their healthcare. And so they, they want to make the decisions that work for them. And so we want to make sure that we are going to be a choice for them that they want to consider very thoughtfully because it's going to be the right thing for them. And that is something that, again, is very different from how other other countries operate based on the, the dynamics, the laws, the regulatory environment. So it isn't really a rivalry. It's just that we have to do things differently. I think what, what there's an opportunity because I actually do get to work with some of my colleagues in our China market, in our international operations market, which is basically all the other countries where we we share our learnings and our insights. We try to break down these silos because if you create a digital platform, perhaps, that is designed to help people better understand their medication or to educate them about a disease state, the modality of it may not necessarily be directly transferable, but it could be adapted for other uh, markets. So it doesn't have to be just a, a pickup and um, a lift and shift. It could be an adjustment. But we do try to keep that connectivity because there's a lot of really good learning that is transferable. It just has to be adapted. I want to go back to what you said about consumerism in the United States because most people will say an educated, well-informed consumer utilizing a free market is going to be better for everybody out there, suppliers, purchasers, everybody along the way. I, I started laughing when you said, you know, healthcare seems to be a laggard. And I'm like, yes, yes, it does. Like we've pegged it at 20 years. It might be long. It might be 25, 30 years beyond that. Only trailing uh, higher education, I feel like, and innovation and just kind of waking up to the actual moment and technology, all that kind of fun stuff. But in healthcare, it's like we make it so complex as to cloud the judgment of the consumer where they just get so frustrated. They throw their hands up and just be like, I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to just go buy everything I possibly can and see what works. And we have that mentality in a lot of exam rooms where doctors just don't have time to spend with their patient, but you see that on almost every single step along the way of anybody's healthcare journey. The question for you is, when you talk about consumerism in the U.S. versus international, where do you think that Americans have really either given up the responsibility on educating their consumers. And, you know, just to put up an example, like I can go read everything I want to about Tide laundry detergent and they want me to be educated on their competitors, right? We don't see that in healthcare. We don't see United saying, this is why you should pick us versus this one over here. And then this is why you should go to this hospital and not this hospital over here. There's no competition, even in a friendly standpoint, to really foster that educational incentive on consumers, so I, I'm really curious where you see it from your side of how do you educate a market that's actually going to sink in and not just create more robots, I guess. I don't know what else to say from a consumerism standpoint, but how do you guys go about creating and getting enough information to a consumer so that they're like, yes, this is my well-informed decision. I need to go learn more about this. Well, you know, speaking from the pharmaceutical industry standpoint, you could almost argue maybe there's a little bit 
too much information out there. Like when you look at what, if you're watching television and there's, we see a lot of pharmaceutical advertisements and it can get a little confusing. There's a lot of noise out there and that can almost get people to kind of shut down uh, to, to a degree. Um, but, but it also, you know, these, the advertisements that, that you see in the market are intended for the person to get the attention of somebody who may have the condition and to encourage them to talk to their, their doctor about it, do a little bit more research and, and determine, is this the right thing to do? And in talking with their doctor, have the conversation around, what are my options? What's going to be right for me? And I think there's an appreciation by the provider world, because in light of in light of the time challenges that we have to have that educated consumer come in and have those conversations. But again, it can also get confusing because there is so much out there. But that is really, that is the intent of these direct-to-consumer television commercials, the things that you see online, any sort of promotion. It's about, here's some information for you. You need to talk with your treatment team, your doctor, to determine what are your options and what's going to be the best thing for you. Um, but it, it it can be a lot of information at times. It can be a little overwhelming. That it, it can be. We're talking with Amy West, the head of U.S. Digital Transformation and Innovation, Novo Nordisk. Amy, you talked about an internal innovation incubator, and you know this is fascinating. So my life has been in the startup world. That's entrepreneurism, startup over the past decade or so of of my career, and you know bootstraps, funded, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. The concept that a company like Nova Nordisk and, and then your talents are coming in from an internal innovation standpoint. Give us an idea of what that looks like within a company versus what a lot of our listeners are going to say, well, I'm an entrepreneur. I, I set up medical clinics or I have my, I'm a small business owner. Give us just a little glimpse into the life of an internal incubator. Sure. Yeah. So just, just um, for the record, you know, innovation, at Novo Nordisk, innovation is everybody's responsibility and everybody's job. And there are different there are different capacities and scopes and focuses based on where you sit. What's really interesting, I think, for what I'm leading up is this is a very unusual type of operating model or construct in the world of pharmaceutical manufacturing in that we have an internal innovation incubator. We have a lab framework that we developed uh, that is fit for our purposes to help us discover the root cause pain points of our patient customer. We start with our patient customer first. What is the root cause pain point? Again, going beyond even getting access to the drug. What is preventing you from having a good health outcome and a good quality of life? And being that educated um, healthcare consumer. We start there, and then through our process, we apply these innovation methodologies, which haven't traditionally been used in the pharma space. Things like agile, lean, um, design thinking, to advance opportunities through the different phases of ideation, test and learn, experimentation, experimentation to minimum viable product, market pilot validation, and then potentially to scale. And again, the concept of all of this is we want to take a problem, starting with our customer's problem. And what's important to really, I think, call out there is that in any business, including pharma, a lot of times when you're talking with folks in the organization, they're looking to solve a problem. It's a business problem. 
we're looking to start with the patient's problem. And not that we're not always looking to try to do what's best for our customer, but I think sometimes you can get a little lost in that, okay, this is a business problem you're really trying to solve. How do we how do we really get to the root cause of the patient value and value need side? So that's where we start. And then this is giving us some unique insights and opportunities to then really check the box on what do our customers really want when it comes to their health and wellness? And then is there an innovative modality out there that we can bring that to life? So for the person who doesn't, as an example, the person who We'll say the single mother with three kids who's working two jobs, her car just broke down. She can't get to the doctor's office and she's not prioritizing her health because of all these other really important things like keeping a roof over her kid's head and keeping food in their bellies. So how do we, how do we shift the paradigm of control from the clinic? I can't get to the clinic because my car broke down to, well, you know, we're going to bring it to you. And that can be through a smart home environment. That could be through a low tech mobile healthcare unit that comes to your house. Again, exploring these different ways to, to make it easier for this mom to take care of her health so that she can take care of her family. And we, we try, so if you have a concept like that, we try many different ways to solve for that. You could say a hundred different things. And then you, as you test them down through the funnel of the experimentation model, applying these innovation methodologies, you hopefully come up with one or two viable options that will, number one, meet the need and desirability of the customer, check the box on the feasibility that you can actually do this. There's a technology or a methodology or, or a vehicle to do this. And then thirdly, you know, what is, it has to be business viable. There has to be that shared value for us to be able to invest in something like that. And that shared value does not have to be money. It doesn't have to be an ROI or revenue. It, it can be a new business model. It can be greater insight around our at-risk patients. You know, it, it doesn't have to be a dollar figure, but it has to be something that is going to better inform the organization so that we can continue to invest in our R&D efforts and our innovation. So again, we can deliver the best solution for our customers. I like the mentality that you bring to it, right? Um, it's not just saying, all right, what's the business problem? But what is what what's happening in real life and you know going back to the introduction that's what is remarkable cuz so many big companies say look i built this great hammer let's go find a bunch of nails or try to turn things into nails and then you you've again you you flip the script and you're saying all right how do we actually help those people what is your response when you know somebody's looking at this and saying well you guys are a pharmaceutical company so you make money the more pharmaceuticals you sell if you now embark on a mission to emphasize prevention, emphasize people actually becoming healthier, curing potentially chronic diseases, doesn't that cut into your top line? Well, I mean, first of all, pharmaceutical manufacturers, we are, we are not nonprofits, right? And um, we are there to generate a revenue and a, and a profitability. But the important thing is that profitability also en enables us to invest in future innovation. That's a, you know, that is so much of what we're looking to do. We cannot keep, we have to continuous, continuously improve and you have to invest in order to do that. And as, and we know like in pharma right now, um, you know, the average time to market for an early discovery molecule is 10 years on average. And it could be even longer than that. It's hundreds of millions of dollars. And 
many of those things never even get to market because they, they fail or they're not going to work or whatever. So, you know, it's important that we, you know, it's important to know that the, the revenues that are generated are, you know, put back into the early R&D and innovation spaces. And, you know, there, the, I think there's also at times, depending on the innovation space that you're working in, um, for example, uh, the work that my team does, it's a very efficient, lean, agile way of advancing opportunities. It doesn't require you know, a $50 million investment. It, it, it can be a very, very efficient way to test and advance things very, very quickly without having to, you know, invest a lot of money that could have been, the trade-off could have been somewhere else. So we're very careful about how we think about where we want to invest in innovation because we, we obviously want to get the most benefit out of it, but innovation doesn't have to be a huge, huge investment. Now, if you're if you're playing in the molecule space and more of this, the heavy science area, it could be a different story because of a lot that goes into it. And that's that's definitely out outside of my area of responsibility and insight. But I think that it's a mistake sometimes to think that innovation has to be some huge, huge investment because it doesn't have to be. I totally hear you. Um, you know, my background is more real estate investment. And we started looking at that, just the cash intensive nature of that saying, wow, what it we could invest in this house or we could go fund a business that has the potential to change the world for a couple of years here. So again, it just echoing kind of reflecting that mentality that, that you have there. And we've had some people uh, in the pharmaceutical world who has been on the show and uh, it is really staggering the amount of money and amount of time that goes into it. And I get it. You want to know it's safe. You want to know if it's effective, but again, the rest of the world is looking at us and saying, well, what is the U.S. going to do next? What are the U.S. companies? How are they going to innovate and create new drugs, new technologies, all that kind of fun stuff? Amy, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to hear back from our fantastic sponsor, Freedom Doc, and then we'll come back. And I know I've got a lot more questions for you, and I definitely want to dive into where you guys are seeing investment going here and how that affects potential groups of people that potentially didn't have the best education, best uh, access to healthcare, and really the initiatives that you're helping drive that forward. So we'll be back with Amy West right after this message. Physician burnout is a killer. It is driving our best and brightest out of medicine. The only solution to burnout is to be your own boss. The easiest way to be your own boss is join the Freedom Doc Physician Network. Freedom Doc is a unified brand that will fully finance your practice so that you can enjoy a healthier lifestyle, take better care of patients, and spend more time with your family. You focus on patients. Freedom Doc focuses on your business. So if you're ready to be your own boss, visit our website, freedomdoc.care, to learn more and schedule a consultation with one of our experts, Freedom Doc, Accessible Concierge Healthcare. Once again, we are returning back to our regular scheduled programming with Amy West, the head of U.S. Digital Transformation and Innovation at Novo Nordisk. Amy, we spent the first part of this episode really talking about large companies, how they can still innovate and some problems and opportunities we see within American healthcare. I'm curious, you know, you run uh, an internal innovation incubator. Where are you seeing investment dollars being pushed towards? Um, well, I think across healthcare in general, it's obvious that there's this huge rush to, rush to digitization, which I think is great in a lot of ways because obviously this can create so many efficiencies and help us accelerate drug discovery, uh, work, improve workflows, 
create less discrepancy in data and create connectivity across uh, health data and things like that. Um, so there's obviously a huge investment in this space. Obviously, challenges still exist when, it, as it relates to um, data privacy, making sure that everything is secure, which is utmost of utmost importance across the board. Which I think, and again, I think it's great. This has the promise to really help us leapfrog into some new areas of innovation that I think can really improve and help change, you know, help people have better lives, but also improve the overall healthcare experience. The one thing you know that I would caution, though, from what I see, and I'm, I'm speaking more broadly about this, um, that as as healthcare stakeholders, we don't want to we don't want to jump on shiny objects. We want to leverage the digital, the technology, as long as it is doing the job for the customer. It's going to to meet their needs. We don't want to just be playing with things because we can do it and, and make something happen. Because at the end of the day, if it doesn't get used by the end user, whether it's a patient or a physician, it isn't going to have the value that we're, we're hoping it will have. So we can't get distracted by the shiny objects. We have to become enamored of the problem first and is the digital, the technology, is that the right solution? That's how we need to be thinking about it. I'm right there with you. And, you know, I'm curious on your thoughts when during COVID, when you saw this rush to virtual care, were you one of those saying, hey, this is the wave of the future? This is going to revolutionize physician visits across the board? Well, personally, I think I, I've always felt that way. And I think that the industry as a whole was resistant to it because it just isn't a space we're comfortable with. And I think everyone is well-intended, but I think there's a huge concern about the, the, the data. We have to protect people's data. And it's it wasn't a familiar area. So I think it's, it was slow, slow growing, but it was moving in that direction. But then COVID just accelerated all of it. We didn't have a choice. You know, there People, the only way they could see their doctor was through a telehealth visit. And so that, as well as starting to see the remote patient monitoring aspects really take hold. And it really started to, to push us all forward to realize, okay, we can do this. We can figure this out, but, but we have to really start to invest heavily in it. And that's where I think we're starting to see a lot of shifting dollars um, into this, this digital transformation space, because maybe in some ways COVID was the push that we needed in the healthcare industry to really start to get people serious about investing in it. I think there was a, a little bit of an overcorrection. I started to see that come back because so many people thought, well, this is a replacement, right? This is, this is going to replace that humanistic aspect of a fifth of our economy revolves around the interaction between a patient and a doctor. And so virtual aspects are a great supplement, you know, in my mind, but for those people who are looking at and saying this is going to replace that humanistic, like face to face, again, this rush to digitization, which I, I'm I'm very much pro for, but in my mind, it leaves a lot of people it, it leaves a lot of big people behind. I will say that, like the people at the margins, like those margins just shrink, and so people who might not be familiar with the digital products who hardly operate their iPhone, right? Or whatever kind of smartphone they have. People with flip phones. Like there's a lot of people that I feel will be left behind in the wake because everybody's plowing into digitization. And for me, kind of going back and, and building a company that uses kind of an old school approach to medicine of longer visits, more FaceTime, like actually interacting, higher access with your doctor. I'm sitting here saying, wow, there's kind of two competing schools of thoughts here. Curious on your thoughts there, but I guess to summarize, you know, my point here, 
digitization is absolutely necessary, but we risk leaving so many more people behind when we already have so many disaffected Americans already. Yeah, I mean, I you raised some, a number of really important points and a couple of things that I think about a lot. One in particular is this human component. Like, we cannot afford to lose the human connection. And I think we're struggling with that. I mean, I, I think about that too, as, you, as we start, we're starting to see this, this significant rise in AI, like what are the implications of that? We still don't even know yet, but um, we, there are a lot of problems that we're being hit with. I mean, we have a shortage of healthcare professionals and COVID just made that worse because so many people got, so many of them got burned out during that whole process. And I have family members that are included in that. And it's, 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 it's really heartbreaking in a lot of ways. And that, that's been hard for them. It's been hard for patients. It's been hard for people uh, because you're, you're not getting that connectivity that, that you want. It's getting harder and harder to get in and get, you know, make an appointment to, to do something. Um, so that's, that's a real challenge. And I think that we have to, you know, again, as, as we are applying these technologies, we cannot lose sight of the human aspect. And that's, Again, as, as we are rushing and racing to try to leverage the the opportunity that we have with these innovations, we just cannot lose sight of that human connection. And you raise a good point about this disparity, you know, and it kind of gets even into the health equity piece. Um, there are many, many people out there who are not connected. They don't have mobile phones. They don't have smartphones. They could be elderly and they don't, you know, understand how to use these types of things. I do think over time this is somewhat generational, though, too, because the, the generations that are coming up, you know, they've been raised on keyboards and screens and, quite frankly, having relationships through a screen versus, you know, real, live and in person. So it'll be interesting to see over time, and who knows if we'll all be there then, but what those expectations are going to be because when you're used to just like, Hey, I don't need to go talk to somebody in a, in a room and actually see them. I'm used to just having this screen conversation. They might be fine with that. But right now we still have a lot of people. I mean, it wasn't that long ago when you think about pre COVID that it was, it was still like go to the doctor and see your doctor and, and sit down with them. So I think some of these things are going to kind of play out in the wash. But I think, again, we have to be sensitive as we are introducing these new capabilities and technologies that they are equitable and accessible by all. And those are things that we have to seriously take, take into, you know, we have to think about because uh, it, it, could, it could further create the disparity if we're not careful or exacerbate the disparity. Yeah. It, in, in your work, Amy, how big of a barrier is the payment structure, the current payment model that is dominated by third-party payers? How big of a barrier is that into innovation and your daily job? Well, I'll be honest with you. My daily job, it, it, I actually am in, I'm in a really fortunate space because you know the way to really drive true innovation, you have to remove. You can't have the constraints in there on day one. You, you've got to, you've got to have a green field. You've got to be able to blue sky and then, and then, you know, for you, you test further down, you start to bring in some of the, uh, it, it's sort of the, the parameter, I don't want to call them gatekeepers, but the people that are, that are, that are doing their job to ensure efficacy, safety, regulatory, legal compliance. 
And so where where my team starts is we don't have to deal with any of that. It's, it's almost like, God, in, in a perfect world, what if we could do this? And then, then you start to test different ways to do that. And then further down the funnel is where you can start to, you need to start to bring in, okay, what are the parameters of what we can and can't do? And in my team, we, we take an opportunity, we, we, we look to experiment and, and get to a validated opportunity that then gets picked up by an area of the organization that can actually build it out and scale it. And, and in some ways, it's going to be on them to really make sure that, it, that it's complying with all the rules and the regulations. And then if there's a payment component to it, they'd have to work on, you know, what does that look like? That kind of sits outside my world. But Again, we're, they really want us to be able to move forward a pure innovation mindset and not be constrained by the things that have traditionally, I think, held pharma back from really coming coming up with these disruptive opportunities. Because there's, oftentimes there's a way to make it work. It's just our starting point. If you start from a place of constraint, you're not going to get to that sort of disruptive space. Well, it's a lot of this legacy thinking that you've identified as, hey, this is a serious problem in our industry. It is the status quo, and we're kind of a slave to the status quo, and this is how we always did things, so we're going to continue doing it this way, right? Things come to mind when we're talking about, you know, the technology coming in and the digital aspect of it. In my opinion, we weren't able to really service a lot of the virtual visit demand during COVID because there was no reimbursement code for it. The technology existed for 30 years. People have been Skyping across the Atlantic for decades, but yet, if I can't get reimbursed for it, I'm not going to do it, right? So there's no payment incentive to go out there and actually say this. So that's where I'm thinking, like, you know, how big of a barrier to these things is not just insurance, but regulations in general? We thought digitizing EMRs were going to be the savior of U.S. healthcare, and that <laughs> it, two and a half decades later has yeah, we got bigger problems. <laughs> still created just massive problems and yeah, I kind of joke over a cocktail every once in a while. I'm like, you know, paper and pencil was a form of technology one time. That was an innovation. <laughs> Not saying we should go back to it. But, you know, it, I think people are saying like, oh, technology can save us. Technology can save us. But yet we have the technology tools right there. But there's so much stuff in the middle of it that clouds judgment. It inhibits innovation, people going out and saying, hey, it'd be great if I could go invent this thing and discover this thing over here. But then how are we going to actually get paid for it by the big three, big four insurers or by CMS? And they're always behind the eight ball there. So I, I, I guess less of a question, more of a comment, you know, for you, Amy, there that, you know, in my mind, like when I ask you, what kind of barriers are you seeing right there? Like, I don't want to stir up any bad blood or, or have anybody point fingers at you or anything like that. But to me, like as in running an incubator, you're like, there's so many cool things we could do. But the payment model is just so antiquated and we have to be bound by those rules. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, again, that that is a very complex, involved challenge. I mean, I think it, that's when you start to get into federal and state regulation and uh, politics. Oh, and, yeah. You know, all these kinds of things that was just we don't want to necessarily get into. But, um, you know, from where I sit, I think the important thing is to get coverage, to get reimbursement, you want to, your, your product has to be safe and efficacious. And if there's a way that you can, and, and honestly, like when you look at pharma in general, like if you take the diabetes space, you know, we've, we've had medications around for decades 
and starting with insulin and the medications we have for that drug and beyond my own company, you know, really, really, really good that work really, really well if you take it the way you're supposed to. And the challenge has been that, you know, our adherence and compliance rates are not great. They are, I think the uh, only 20 to 30% of prescriptions for chronic medication, chronic disease medications are filled. And of the ones that are filled, only half of them are used optimally. So you're not getting the desired outcome that we want. And, And we've said, like in our clinical trials, this is what we can do. So we are trying to find, you know, it's, the medication works, but if you don't take it the way you're supposed to, you're not going to have that optimal outcome. So as we think about innovation, maybe we should be looking at the human behavior side of things. Maybe we should be looking at the social determinants of health, the socioeconomic implications and influences that are playing a huge role in a person's ability to be adherent and compliant. And if we can solve for some of those things through technology and innovation, perhaps that helps out the real world evidence and value of our medication stronger, better to, you know, ensure that these should be reimbursed because they do work really well. So that's kind of how I think about it. It doesn't necessarily have to be about just paying for a drug. It, It can be, well, how are we helping people adhere to these drugs better? How do we make it easier for them to get it and engage with it better? How do we help keep them to be better educated patients or, or people? I always hate to say patients because they're people. Um, you know, how do we how do we ensure that? Because the reality is, at the end of the day, if you're somebody that has chronic health issues, you're going to see your doctor once, twice, maybe three times a year. You have to manage your disease state on your own for the most part. That's the reality. So how can we make it easier, better for you to do that? And I think that's where, you know, there's a huge benefit that, you know, that doesn't get looked at as as part of the, the payment model either. So, you know, maybe we should be thinking about that a little bit differently. And again, shifting, maybe shifting to that well care prevention model a bit more. Well, I have a couple ideas, right? Like, that's like the, I love the well care side of it because, you know, that's what we're doing. And so just to give a glimpse into our world, when we have an office dispensing for medications, you go see the doctor, you walk out with your medications. Guess what that does to compliance rates? They skyrocket. You don't have another trip and you don't have to go out and pull out a coupon card or just roll the dice on what you're going to be charged there. And so there are models where it's like, okay, just give us a cash prize. We'll let the consumer go out and make their own judgment on it. And so you know, we are emphasizing doctors want to do right. You know, and, and that's where we're emphasizing the fact that that relationship is very, very positive when it comes to compliance rates. And one of the things I rail against is, you know, value-based care and, and bundled payments and that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, if a person doesn't want to go out and lose weight or be healthier or stop smoking, how are you going to penalize the physicians? How are you going to penalize, you know, the hospitals? It, it's just one of those things that makes me scratch my head. But, you know, that goes back to the, the, the policy aspect of it that you're talking. So it, it's funny, and I love this conversation because there's so many points where we're like, yes, wouldn't it be great if this, this, and this uh, came out and, and happened? You know, one thing I, I was thinking when you're talking, when you mentioned that maybe somebody with chronic disease sees their doctor one, two, three times a year, 
I've always been really jealous of dentists uh, being in <laughs> primary care right now because for some reason when we're ingrained, you know, when we're born, we're ingrained that we got to go see a dentist every six months. And I actually <laughs> spent some time trying to look that up. Like, why is that? I figured that the American Dental Association like put this in and it wasn't. It was a marketing ploy by some early toothpaste company. So I don't know, maybe, Amy, there's there's maybe our uh, our solution here is we'll get a joint advertising campaign out here that says you need to go see your doctor, at least talk to them every two months. And I think we could change a lot of behaviors if we did something like that. I mean, I, I wish it were that simple, but honestly, I my heart does go out to the to the providers that they, we don't have, we don't have enough, you know, and they're overworked. And I, I just got my flu shot, uh, last night at, at a pharmacy and, and a couple weeks before I got my COVID shot and I make sure that I thank them every single time for what they're doing because it's, it's not easy. And a lot of those folks in the pharmacies, they were never set up to be doing vaccines, you know? So I think they're really trying to pull their weight really, really hard and it's tough and it's hard and, Unfortunately, we have a lot of people in this country and around the world, and we have health issues, and we need talented, caring, empathetic providers and healthcare, you know, healthcare practitioners to be, to be there for us. So it's tough. I, I wish we could have a campaign where, yeah, go see your doctor every six months, but we just, we just don't have the capacity for that. Amy, last question for you. Because you, know, you do integrate and work with so many different international initiatives, I would say, underneath one roof, give us your 30,000-foot view. You know, what are the next couple of steps we can take to help make the U.S. healthcare industry better? Well, a couple things. I mean, I, I love big picture this idea of moving from the sick care model to well care model and incentivizing preventive measures. So that's as you know, big picture. But I think um, when we think about innovation from a technology and digital standpoint, you know, how do we how do we shift the paradigm of sort of healthcare control from the clinic to the individual? How do we build smart cities, smart homes, accelerate that so that you put the access control into the hands of the individual and make it easier for them to to take care of their own health and wellness because they don't have to think about it so much. It's embedded in their environment. And that information can be shared with their healthcare team, with their loved ones. And it creates just a more seamless, convenient way to engage in your health and wellness. And I think that would be a really interesting way to think about accelerating better health and wellness for everybody. And then you're potentially changing the incentives to that well care model. Amy West, head of U.S. Digital Transformation and Innovation at Novo Nordisk. Amy, thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun and I appreciate the conversation. Thanks, Christopher. That's going to do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes. Subscribe to our mailing list and visit our online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all of our episodes. Visit the shop and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced and managed by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. 
Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.